Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. Drilling Deep is the place in the Freightways family of freight casts where we talk about oil and diesel, which you need to make the trucks go and which needs to be drilled to get at. And then we talk about our topic of the week. This week, we cover a lot of ground with Jason Miller. Jason's a professor in Michigan State University, home of the Spartans, and he can talk about pretty much anything in the trucking world since he studied it so closely. He's our guest today, and he's going to be talking about the manufacturing sector and what its rebound means for trucking. Let's start talking about the oil world. We're on some run in the diesel market. The weekly DOAEIA diesel price is up more than 26 cents in nine weeks. The price has risen in each of those nine weeks. It hasn't had a nine-week run like that for several years, and there was a run of uh, about 10 weeks about three or four years ago, but percentage-wise, it's gone up more in this run than it did in that one 10 years ago, uh, several years ago. Uh, the trends in the market this week, as I record this, probably means we're looking at a 10th consecutive week of DOE EIA price increase next week. You know that old joke about it's not you, it's me? That was played out on Seinfeld many times. So the question in looking at diesel right now is how much of this increase is diesel and how much of it is is crude? There's a spread between the two. And I like to refer to the diesel spread in terms of trucking as like the last mile to get to that final price. I could tell you that right now crude can be saying it's not you, it's me, because crude is carrying the weight of these increases. The spread between global benchmark Brent crude oil and ultra-low sulfur diesel has weakened a bit in the last few days. It had been strengthening somewhat before that. And the bottom line, though, is that right now that spread is back to about where it was a month ago. So it means that diesel is keeping up with the moves in crude. It's not lagging and it's not surpassing it. There really isn't a lot of reason for diesel to surpass crude. Inventories are climbing once again by a significant amount. The day's cover for all distillates number is tacked on almost eight days since the middle of November. That's a lot of days. Yes, it's winter and the distillate number includes heating oil, so you'd expect it to be high. But it's higher than the five-year average and it's the highest in four years. That's going to hold back diesel prices for moving up faster than crude, but it might, then, might make them rise a little slower than crude as well. You're probably wondering why I'm talking about all this other stuff, these spreads, that kind of stuff. When if you're a consumer of diesel, you probably don't care about any of that. The only thing you care about is the fact that you are paying a lot more than you have been paying since the start of the pandemic. If we date the full-blown full blown collapse in prices to the first week of March, the commodity price of ULSD has regained all of that. The price was going down before that sort of early March collapse already, but it really went into free fall around March 5th, March 6th. We've recovered that. The latest DOE price of $264 a gallon is the highest price since the March 23rd price. And as I mentioned earlier, it's likely to be higher still when it comes out on Monday. But right now in the oil market, it's mostly a crude show. Brent, which is the worldwide crude benchmark, is above $54 per barrel for the first time since early March. OPEC and its OPEC Plus brethren this week surprised the market with the Saudis announcing they'd cut a million barrels per day off the market, even though the existing OPEC agreement was going to allow them and other countries to produce a lot more starting in the next few months. The dollar continues to be weak. And as we've discussed on Drilling Deep before, a weak dollar leads to higher oil prices. It also helps to fuel inflation. So those higher rates that companies are getting to run freight uh, do have the risk of getting eaten up by more price increases in all of an operation's costs. It's not just oil. Commodities across the board are rising. Copper is at levels not seen in almost nine years. 
lumber is through the roof. The increase in the price of diesel and oil is not unusual in that sense. And freight rates are not a classic commodity because you can't store them, obviously, but there are a lot of commodity-like aspects to it. And they, as you know, are at high levels. It looks like the signal for higher inflation is, is there, and that may be good for the rates drivers are going to get. But for the consumers of those commodities, it is not good news. We are going to move on now on Drilling Deep, and we're going to start the year off by talking to Jason Miller. Jason is an associate professor at Michigan State University. He studies supply chain management. He's here to talk to us about a lot of things because he can talk about almost anything. Jason, welcome to Drilling Deep. Hard to believe this is the first time I've had you on. Thank you so much for having me on, John. So I know in general, you're pretty bullish for the sector right now for a lot of reasons. Can you give us kind of the, the base case why you think 2021 is going to be another good year after a very strong 2020? Yeah, of course. So if we're looking at the trucking sector right now, the things I'm seeing are, one, um, we're still going to have strong consumer demand. If you look at where the personal savings rate is, it's still well above uh, pre-COVID levels. Um, with the current election results today, I would anticipate more stimulus coming, um, both in the form of expanded unemployment and checks to the majority of Americans. So that'll keep driving retail demand. Um, On the manufacturing side, things are starting to slowly but surely look better. I mean, manufacturing was very badly affected um, March, April, and May, but things are coming back. The durable goods orders, um, seasonally adjusted, ticked back up a little bit more um, this last month. We're not anywhere, you know, we're not as strong as we were in mid-2018, but things are still looking better on that front. And from a standpoint of driver supply, we're, you know, going to have substantial issues, I think, with getting that supply of drivers back into the pipeline, given driver schools are, um, you know, operating at less capacity. And given, I think, a lot of other opportunities have presented themselves for individuals who are skilled at driving vehicles to work elsewhere. Now, let's go back and talk about some of those things one by one. First of all, I had to, you, you were talking about uh, manufacturing and, and uh, higher levels of savings. And, you know, I see a lot of things on social media that 2020 should be the year in which we reflect on values and not the material things. But the reality is, in a lot of markets, they sold a lot of material things <laughs> because people didn't weren't spending their uh, disposable income on vacations and dinners and that sort of thing. So the fact is, we did have a year in which we needed to move needed to move a lot of goods. Now I know that you you have done some work recently that you sent over to me uh, on manufacturing and how much of an upturn that's been. It's been fascinating to watch the stock price um, of various trucking companies because the truckload companies have done well, but the LTL companies, who in many cases are a little more tied to manufacturing, they've done incredibly well. So I, it sounds looks to me like the uh, investors are thinking the LTL sector is going to really benefit from the kind of upturn in manufacturing that you're projecting. Yeah, I think with the major LTL carriers, it's the combination of manufacturing doing better, but especially how well positioned they are in the e-commerce space. And I think that that's what the investors are heavily seeing and looking at. You know, the public truckload carriers have done very well because they're heavily um, invested in working with large shippers, um, many of whom are in that retail space and that consumer packaged goods space. And so they've benefited dramatically. Um, You know, you have 
a lot of your smaller truckload carriers um, that may be specialized in region or specialized by shipper vertical. You know, some of those firms are not doing as well, especially the ones that are, you know, oil and gas or heavy machinery. Um, those are your carriers that have had more difficulties. But the public firms definitely have been well positioned um, to deal with the change in behavior that we've observed by the American consumer. So what are the manufacturing sectors that you think are going to be coming back strong? Right now, it looks like, you know, auto demand is still very high. Um, Demand for steel is starting to kick back up, which is a great sign because that is arguably probably the most important commodity when you look at sort of the health of the manufacturing sector since steel and primary metals go into everything. So seeing those orders tick back up looks good. Um, I would say, you know, we're seeing furniture demand is fairly reasonable. Um, Wood products, there's dramatic uh, demand for that with all the construction going on. So a lot of very sort of freight intensive sectors. Um, If we would see a big stimulus bill that would focus on infrastructure, you know, non-metallic minerals, um, would be, you know, demand for hauling, uh, you know, cement and things like that, even though those are short distance moves that can still be a lot of things. The one sector that's still suffering is demand for, you know, gasoline haulers is still down dramatically. Right. But, you know, even even oil and gas is starting to show some signs of strength. I know I, I wrote a tweet this morning about a company that uh, called Range Resources, that they got their debt in order and, you know, they're going to throw off free cash flow this year. So I think that sector might have hit its bottom too. But but you're right, it's got a long way to go to, to get back to where it was. I mean, let's talk about auto manufacturing. Uh, you know, the numbers, I mean, of course, had a big downturn, but those numbers are are rebounding. How important is that to the trucking sector? And is it a is it a truckload story or is it an LTL story? You know, it's, it's a story of both. Um, the trucking sector is one of the more important sectors with regard to or so the the, um, the auto sector is definitely an important driver of trucking demand. Um, again, it's both going to be LTL carriers and your truckload carriers. The one thing with the truckload carriers is a lot of those that specialize in serving the auto manufacturers tend to be very specialized. And so they tend to be firms that are face substantial risk if auto uh, turns down. We saw that with uh, PAM Transport and um, Landstar and Q2 when we saw their numbers were, you know, very poor relative to a J.B. Hunt or a Schneider, which has much more exposure towards that consumer side. So there's no doubt the auto sector is massively important, not only from, you know, to the trucking industry directly due to uh, component demand, but also indirectly from stimulating demand for steel, which has to be hauled to uh, component suppliers. Now, then you study pricing, and uh, I think a lot of companies in their, let's say their, their well, they wouldn't, haven't, wouldn't have their fourth quarter earnings call yet, but their third, we're talking about double-digit increases in the contract side uh, into 2021. That's a process that goes on for many months. I know you follow it closely. What are you hearing from the bargaining table? So... My view right now, I think double digit on average is a little too extreme. Um, some of the estimates that my colleagues and I um, have produced from some of our research would be pointing to maybe about 8% um, year over year increase um, that shippers will be looking at. 
but that is going to be an on average. I think what we'll see is certain lanes um, and certain shippers may face much larger increases in those double digit um, areas. I think other shippers who may have freight that serves as nice backhauls may see much more muted increases of, you know, say three, four percent because carriers are going to want to make sure they have that freight in their network to maintain balance. And any particular sectors uh, that the truckload serves that are lagging, as we talked about, the demand for a lot of consumer goods is pretty strong. You know, retailers are suffering, but the buying of goods is is doing well. So, uh, but are there still any big areas out there that are hurting? I mean, heavy manufacturing, so again, heavy machinery and and whatnot are still not doing um, or nowhere near pre-pandemic levels at the moment. And so I'd say more your flatbed carriers that are specialized in that area um, are certainly not doing as well as they would, would have been in, let's say, the middle of 2018. All right. Let's. Uh, you talked also about the driver squeeze. We don't like to call it a driver shortage here at Freightwaves, so we call it a driver squeeze. Um, and early in my career, I was taught by an editor: never call it a shortage. Never call anything a shortage. You know, this is when I was writing about metal, metallic commodities. But um, so there's a squeeze. We know that. How much of that do you think is being created, not just by the strong market, but by so many drivers being sort of taken off the road because of the clearinghouse? I mean, the clearinghouse certainly has not helped um, from that standpoint. I mean, it's kind of difficult to figure out, you know, from a causal standpoint, because a lot of these things have been happening at roughly the same time. I'm in complete agreement that I have published research saying that there is not a driver shortage, as economists would formally define a shortage. Squeeze is a much more appropriate term. I like that. I think I'm going to use that. um, (laughs) Just as long as you give us credit, okay? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I'm an academic. I always try to cite things. But um, I think that what we're looking at is a little bit the clearinghouse. More than anything, though, we saw on a seasonally adjusted basis about 99,000 jobs were eliminated in April. And we've just not seen those jobs come back yet. And it's been particularly acute in the long haul sectors, which would make sense because drivers do not want to be, you know, at risk of, you know, getting COVID. And those long haul routes are going to put you more at risk from a standpoint of if something goes wrong, I could be across the country. I think another factor to consider is the incredible boom and in demand for parcel delivery. You have individuals who lost jobs in April. All of a sudden, there's delivery jobs um, that are going to keep you local. Pay is going to be roughly the same. It's hard not to jump on that if you have that opportunity. So I think that you have the um, drug and alcohol clearinghouse. You have driver schools not ch- turning out new drivers. And then you have the additional employment that needs to take place in parcel that is essentially siphoning off um, potential, you know, folks who were truck drivers before who are now hauling parcel. Yeah, um, let's uh, let's talk about. Uh, uh, lost my train of thought here. Um, let's go back for a second. You talk about the ninety nine thousand that were lost. The, the fact that they haven't come back yet, is that because there aren't jobs to fill out there or there just aren't people enough to fill it? Like, could we be back 99,000 if there were enough people to go out and do it? So I, I think it's a combination. I think, um, you know, from a standpoint of carriers, there there is a lot of uncertainty in the future. And if you're a carrier and let's say you lay it off, you know, 
part of your workforce and you maybe even sold the trucks um, or decided that, you know, you no longer need these, are you going to want to go to the effort of making an investment in drivers where there are fixed costs associated with this? Where do I hire someone or do I hire several people? And then I'm looking out in the future and saying, okay, well, what happens if demand changes? Or take an example, let's say the you know, the situation where you have a flatbed carrier that hauls a lot of oil and gas, they decided to let go a lot of their workforce. It's going to be, it's going to take a while for carriers in different sectors to try to go and hire drivers to expand their fleet because they need to acquire equipment. And again, you expand your fleet, you now create a lot of additional operational challenges, right? You've got to find enough freight for, to keep those individuals employed. You've got to rebalance your freight network. And so I think with times of high uncertainty, justifying those investments becomes more difficult. So I, I hate to use a, you know, a technical economics term that really doesn't capture the pain of job loss, but economists would call this the slow reallocation of drivers from essentially certain firms to others. And I think we're experiencing, experiencing that right now. Yeah, I remember what I wanted to ask you kind of along those lines. You did mention the uh, the drop in people coming out of CDL schools. I mean, those numbers that we've that we've seen estimates on are, well, you know, they're in the fifty to hundred thousand dollars, hundred fifty to hundred thousand driver range. Is that number about what you're seeing too? And, and that impact is enormous. I'm getting that number from y'all, so I I, I don't right. have a separate number than that. But it was it's a, a vicious circle, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, and and that's I think sort of the the key thing right now is is this supply squeeze, which creates a different dynamic as we look at the future right now. From say, you know, a lot of a lot of discussion has been, well, can we move ourselves today back to what where 2018 was in January of that year when we saw spot prices go through the roof in part because the ELD mandate just went into effect. We had such strong demand um, with the tax cuts go through. And what we saw, though, through 2018 and especially 2019 is the industry added a lot of employment. I don't see the valve of being able to add substantially to the driver pool being there for at least the first half of 2021. You know, we talked about the ELD mandate for so long as it was coming, and it's the long road between when it was first introduced with soft enforcement and all the way down to the hard enforcement a little more than a year ago. And, you know, we, we kept, I, I don't know, we kind of kept waiting for that moment where we said it's a disaster, it's not a disaster. But, you know, with, with all this time now of retrospect, has it cut capacity, do you think? Because, you know, there was there. There may have been some people who left left the industry as a result of it. Maybe not that many, but just this sort of a far more disciplined uh, disciplined approach toward hours on the road that this thing forced on everybody. Is is that still working uh, to restrict capacity? Or was it? Did, did it ever do that? I think it worked to restrict capacity right when it immediately rolled out because carriers had to adjust their operating routines um, in many instances to be blunt to run a little bit more legally than they normally ran, um, especially in the small the smaller carriers. I mean, the large carriers already use the LDs. They have incredibly are incredibly compliant with our service rules. 
it's the smaller firms. Um, my colleagues, Alex Scott um, and Andy Balthrop and I published a study showing the causal effect of the ELD mandate on hour of service violations. And it was massive. We'd saw, see 20, 30 percent reductions in violations by the smallest carriers. Once um, especially strict enforcement went in effect in 2018. So there's no doubt it cut capacity in 2018, which is probably one of the reasons we saw the spot market surge as much as it did. But you give carriers time, they'll adjust their routines in order to be more compliant. So I do not feel that we're really, any of the capacity issues now have anything to do with ELDs. It's much more that um, supply side of not having enough drivers. Okay. Prospects for the Biden administration and trucking. You know, we had two FIMSA directors in four years of Donald Trump, and, uh, and that's not counting the uh, the acting director now. Uh, has Do you think it's had an impact on the trucking sector? Could it really use a little more stability on the, the regulatory side? You know, I think to me, the key thing is with regulating this sector is recognizing that drivers are professionals and giving them flexibility is something that you want. I've never been a major proponent of the, you know, the fixed you start working, you have a 14-hour clock. I just do not think that is consistent with how the human body behaves. I understand the logic of keeping within a 24-hour circadian rhythm. But I think, to me, the key thing with this sector is flexibility and regulation from a standpoint of let drivers rest when they're tired, let them work when they have energy. And you still have to have the regulation. I mean, if we didn't have regulations, we would have you know individuals running 100 hours a week. But I think, to me, flexibility would be the thing I would urge more than anything. There are, there are some questions about the um, pilot program with under 21. Will that hold? There's discuss, um, this long-running issue of should the CSA program and especially the um, safety measurement system algorithm be modified to change how those scores that are up um, on the SMS website are calculated? I don't know what the future will hold for that, though. I was going to ask you kind of big issues for 2021 that might fly under the radar, but it sounds to me like you just gave me one. Yeah, the, the um, SMS one has been one that's been a long-term discussion um, to try to reform that system. Um, I tend, I've, I've published more academic articles using that data than anyone else in the world. Um, and I can actually say that for the most part, it, it does do a fairly good job and some of the proposed alternatives are actually far worse. And if people think SMS is not is difficult to understand, um, wait till you see what a item response theory model will generate. That will be gobbledygook for anyone who's not a statistician. All right. Well, I want to thank you for talking about that as well as everything else. Jason Miller, uh, Associate Professor at Michigan State. He's been our guest here today on Drilling Deep, the first of 2021. Drilling Deep is part of the Freightways family of freight of podcasts. We call them Freightcasts. Um, you can hear it on all the major platforms for podcasts. I'm your host, John Kingston. Please join us again.